Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the network union, a response to an article by Balaji Srinivasan um, in his series on the network state that he's working on. This is really part of a series that I'm calling Cyber Anarchism, related to my personal research into the ways in which modern technology could potentially challenge the state as we know it. He's working on a book right now. It just happens to be at the same time. Um, kind of in a similar thread, though I'd say he's probably less focused on the demise of the state and sort of mo more focused on how technology can give birth to a new type of state, though that's kind of like semantics because it's possible that this new type of state would be so different that it would be completely different than the current state. So we have to like, what, is it, what does it mean to destroy the current state if this new version is so different that the current state doesn't, whatever, you get the idea, it doesn't matter. Um, he published an article titled How to Start a New Country, um, where he discussed a very high level idea of what the network state, he called it, might look like. I wrote a very short article uh, responding to that, and we did an episode talking about that article as well. So if you haven't watched that, you can check that out or read my response if you want. We're not going to go back and go over that. He just published another article in his series titled The Network Union, and that's what we're going to be discussing here. So I have written a response, which I'll post on the website, um, but we're not going to go through every single detail of what I wrote we're basically just going to go through and talk about the general idea and see sort of our thoughts, what we think about it, and how it contributes to kind of what I am uh, researching as well. So first, let's start by talking about what a network state is just really quickly. Um, he defines it as a 1 to 10 million person social network with a genuine sense of national consciousness, an integrated cryptocurrency, and a plan to crowdfund many pieces of territory around the world. With the internet, we can digitally sew these disjoint enclaves together into a new kind of polity, a network state. So he's saying we could, using technology, create this network of people that would be a kind of new manifestation of a state. Like I said, go back and listen to that other episode of ours if you want much more there. Then he released this other article now, like what we're talking about, the network union. Okay, a network union is part of a network state. He says... The network union is the antecedent of the network state. Network unions could easily be the building blocks uh, of the network state. This is me now. They would essentially be the building blocks of a network state. So we have like the unions and then the state that would essentially be a collection of multiple unions. Does this remind you of anything? Yeah, I mean, it clearly does. I guess I'm not here to critique. I mean, I am here to critique his idea, but not like, again, like draw into critical inquiry, like the ideas that he's using for like his framing of it. But I guess my question would be right off the bat, why is he choosing to include, and you may not know this, um, you may, I'm, we've never talked to him, why is he choosing to include like terminology and then the attachments we have to the terminology like national and state and those types of things when it could be something completely new and different and maybe even this like union of unions, like this organization exactly. of unions, I mean... I guess what I'm saying in terms of social organization, and, and if you've watched any of our other episodes that are like more historical based or, or ideological based that we usually have that our, our wheelhouse for, for lack of a better term, you'll know that we have a great antipathy for things like nationalism and the idea of the nation state. It is one of the least sustainable forms of social organization that human history has ever invented and found itself working within. So why carry that baggage 
into something new. And again, this is like a maybe a critique of his proposal, not necessarily a critique of the methodology. I think you understand what I'm saying. No, right? 100%. Yeah, this is one of my biggest critiques too, which I have yet to like provide because like you said... Why is he still using that, that terminology? Because it's, it yeah. might feel like it's just words, but those words have meaning and a lot mm-hmm. of attachment and, a, and the word I just used, a lot of baggage. Yeah, so I don't know. Be like, like we talked about in the previous episode when we discussed this, we don't have all of his like theory, right? Because he's releasing this in like blog posts, essentially uh, piecemeal. Essentially, based on what I've heard in his interviews, he's working on a book. So maybe it will all become more clear when we have his cohesive thing. But my assumption is, like my research question is really, how can technology destroy the state and nationalism, et cetera? His, I think, is really how it can give birth to a different, different manifestation. Kind of state, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think there's two different things, right? And we obviously don't agree. Like, I don't have any interest in using technology to recreate all of the ills of the state right. that already exists. Why, why, why pres- do that? Why right? preserve any of that? I mean, even yeah. even even listeners out there that might be grinding their teeth and they're like, well, it's got to be more sustainable since I use that word than like empires like Rome. Well, unfortunately, like, no, like, no, the mm-hmm. nation state's been around since more or less the 1700s as we know it. Like it's not. And humans have been around for 350,000 years. We've been organizing ourselves in way way more efficient or productive or sustainable, whatever word, choose your word here, ways, rather than the state and all of its attachments, I guess. that That's that's kind of... No, 100%. That's agree, my hesitation yeah. here. Like, mm-hmm. why keep this thing that for 300 years has proven to create, like, climate devastation, um, holocausts, for lack of a better term, um, back-to-back world wars while we're using, like, historical... I mean, non-stop exam- warfare, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, why? Why do that? Like, mm-hmm. what's... It's no, proven. Yeah. I don't have that answer. Yeah. But I think this is where like he and I probably differ, right? It, 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 my research, at least, I'm not going to say this is what I want, right? But my research, at least, is exploring how technology might destroy the state, not just using it uh, to recreate a different state. Like that's that. Why do that, right? Why like? Let's use technology to create a different form of nationalism. Like why? Yeah. We like, just we need to get rid of nationalism altogether, right? Yeah, that's a high level critique, I think, of the whole mission. But until we see the book, like who knows what the whole picture is that he's accomplishing. I mean, and again, I this know. is merely an ideological critique. The methodology here is probably what we're more interested in. Yeah, exactly. So let's just get to that and I'll stop complaining. So a network state would consist of multiple network unions. I like like the reason I asked you that question is because I think it's funny. We're deep in our show right now in like late 19th and early 20th century Russia for some reason. We've talked about like Russian nihilism and Russian literature, revolutionary nihilism with the czar and so forth. And Ukrainian serfdom. free state, yeah. black army. The black Mark, army, no, yeah. Russian revolution. We just did a history on that. So it's funny because Soviet Union is basically translated literally as like union of unions. So a network made up of multiple unions, right? Basically is like a union of unions. Like we're getting in the realm of like, at Uh, least theoretically, the ideology of the Soviet Union, right? Which is kind of interesting. You better be careful with that that use of the word union. Someone's going to correct us. Soviet's more like a workers' council or something. Yeah, exactly. It means community. It means 20 different things. Like, yeah, yeah, I get it. That's fine. It's a union. Okay. In simple terms... Srinivasan defines a network union as, quote, a social network with a blockchain, a leader, and a purpose. That's really the most simplistic definition he has in his article. He further specifies it's a, quote, social graph organized in a tree-like structure with a leader, a purpose, a crypto-based financial and messaging system, and a daily call to action. Okay. Then he spent some time, we'll get more into that, depth into that in a second. He spent some time talking about 
traditional social networks and the problems that they have um, is essentially that like a Facebook or a Twitter, et cetera, is basically just for sharing pictures and messages and maybe raising awareness and so on, but don't really have a true mission, right? Like the users of Facebook aren't all working together towards some end goal. They're not all working together to like, you know, benefit themselves, collective bargaining, like these types of things really don't play into why people use Facebook. Like that's not a thing. No, it's a celebration um, of the individual. Yeah, exactly. Which is, we'll actually touch on that, the individualism in just a second. He then talks about, which I was happy as a sociologist, um, Robert Putnam's book, a 2000 book titled Bowling Alone. Um, this is a really famous work of sociology um, published in 2000, like I said, that kind of chronicles the disintegration of social community in the United States and how this gives birth to sort of a perverted sense of individualism in America. It's one of the most popular like works of sociology so far in the 21st century. Um, so it's interesting, I like hearing him um, talk about that. And he basically comes up with a term, like, I think his goal is really, yes, we are in this position as Putnam describes in his book, where these social communities really don't exist anymore and the, the whole what the example that Robert Putnam uses, in addition to many others, is that people no longer are part of like bowling leagues, right? There's just not really a thing as much as it used to be. Um, and like religious organizations and unions and veterans organizations and so forth. All these things that really used to be tightly knit social communities, you know, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, so forth, right? We've seen this huge decline basically since World War II. And so I think what Srinivasan is arguing is that he uses this term bowling alone, but posting together. Right. So that in social networks now, we're all still we don't have tightly knit social communities in the real world, nor do we have tightly knit social communities in the virtual world. Right. We're kind of bowling alone, but posting together. That's what we're doing. We, we, we don't have friends and communities really face to face interactions. And obviously, that's not to say that, like, no one does that. Right. You never see your friends, but it's not nearly as much, which was Putnam's main thesis as it was, you know, in the middle and late uh, really 20th century. And so the argument is that basically we exist, we, we don't have these face-to-face -face things nearly as much as we used to, but we're all online together posting, but there's no real mission. There's no real end, end goal to our virtual participation. So Srinivasan's main argument is that these network unions would fix that issue potentially, that we could work online using technology to have uh, collective goals and really work to towards those goals. There's actually quite a bit of interesting work that I've been finding in my research about how online communities fulfill some of the same functions that used to be fulfilled by the now, like basically non-existent uh, social groups. However, the interesting thing is that they're different functions, right? So like everyone knows, right, participating in a subreddit is not nearly the same as participating in like a bowling league, as an example. Um, so Putnam's thesis, and I think Srinivasan agrees, and I do for sure, is that this has had a significant impact on how we define ourselves as individuals and how we behave, and has had a significant impact on the functioning of society overall. And 
that the virtual communities that we exist within have not fulfilled those functions in the same way. It's not as if like Facebook came in and completely just stepped in and took on the roles of like a bowling league. It's like qualitatively different, right? right? We still get some weird like version of community by being in like a subreddit, but it's not nearly the same as like the face-to-face interactions in a sports league, right? As an example, something like that. It's a surrogacy, which we'll be talking about yeah, in the future. Perfect. Yeah. Um, then Srinivasan spends a lot of time talking about how blockchains are the key to unlocking the potential of these uh, social, or sorry, network unions, right? Basically, he says that we can use blockchain technology to unlock the potential of current social networks and actually make them uh, function in ways that help people accomplish things. Uh, here's a quote from him. He says, quote, Right now, these social networks are mainly used for idly sharing information, messaging, commiserating, recreating, sometimes raising awareness or signing petitions. But with blockchains, we can power them up dramatically. With backlinks, we can quantify their support base. And with the concept of a network union, we can reconceptualize their very purpose. We're going to come back to the term backlinks in just a second because he really harps on this uh, idea. And in my opinion, sort of makes a misstep in using this term that's kind of esoteric at this point, but we'll come back to that in a second. He then provides a list of items made possible by blockchain technology, and he has a long list like crypto finance and encrypted messaging and uh, et cetera. I don't want to go over every single one of those. I just want to go over three that I think are really, um, really could be impactful and that I think can't be achieved at least easily in other ways. I do actually think there are some things that he lists that can be achieved without a blockchain. For example, encrypted messaging already exists and it's not using a blockchain, right? Signal exists and uh, proton mail exists and so forth. Now, those aren't decentralized, but they are encrypted uh, messaging examples. So the first thing he says that the blockchain can bring about is partial sovereignty. And he says, if admin privileges are removed from a smart contract on the blockchain, then it can be fully decentralized where the people Anyone that's using the blockchain can make use, uh, can interact with one another through this smart contract, and there's no central authority which determines uh, how those things go, how the tokens are allocated, uh, what the interest rates are if you're using decentralized finance, all kinds of things like that, right? So this one is actually appealing, and I think it's actually one of the biggest upsides of blockchains that are empowered with smart contracts like Ethereum and Cardano, and there are other examples. Do you have anything to add to that one? No, I mean what you just explained there actually is 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 reminding me real quickly. We teach a class called ideologies and isms, and the final final uh, assignment is these students in, in groups uh, have to present to us the next new big ideology, and they can take two different approaches. They can either be prescriptive in what they want the next world to look like and be a little bit more utopian and pie in the sky and and create a new world, or some we also allow them to be more like realistic, like based on the trajectory we're on, where do you think we're heading? Um, that's all a long explanation to say that um, actually two different groups recently brought up these very same points in their presentation mm-hmm. that they saw in the future um, or their ideal future, I couldn't tell if they were actually promoting it or they just thought this is where it was going, was this idea that the blockchain can be used outside of just in in terms of like replacing fiat currency and using NFTs and all those types of things, that it could be used to decentralize things um, like the education system and healthcare mm-hmm. and, and um, even social credits, um, minimum 
what did they call it? Not minimum wage, but uh, why can't I think of the term? Like base income. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, universal types. basic income. Yeah, universal basic income. These types of things. So oh, it's God. Just, if you're if you list if you if you're listening and you're interested, there's actually a UBI. I think it is, I think the token is UBI. It's a universal basic income token. Right. And if you own that token, then it basically drips into your account this income that they're trying to like proof of concept for universal basic income on the blockchain. Anyway, I guess the only intriguing part and why I'm chiming in with this is because it's clearly on people's minds. And in this case, university students um, that I'm mm-hmm. calling into question, um, it's something that's that, that, that has a lot of potential, I guess. And yep. a lot of people are seeing it as perhaps a way to, um, I guess what you're talking about and what he's talking about is decentralization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good. So Yeah, and I think there's a we're going to do an episode on this shortly. We actually were going to do it this week until uh, Srinivasan published his article and we decided to respond to it. But on DAOs, D-A-O, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, which is really a new phenomenon that came about as a result of Ethereum, really, the Ethereum blockchain and smart contracts. I've done a deep dive into those as part of my research. And we're going to do an episode kind of talking about what they are and how they function and uh, how they can create something that is decentralized. But yeah, that's another episode. So tune into that one. Um, so partial sovereignty, that's possible. The next one is governance, which I think is really, really interesting and something that I've been really into too lately is how these decentralized autonomous organizations, or in this case, a network union, can govern themselves in a way that is quite different, at least technologically, than the way that most of these things would be governed, right? Either you have like this monolithic hierarchy where there's one person at the top and they govern everything and no one gets a say, or maybe the board of directors as an example, or you have kind of a fully decentralized organization where everyone gets one vote and, uh, right, like one person equals one vote and so forth. And it's like a true democracy, right? That's kind of the ideal. But if you've ever been in any kind of situation where you've tried to achieve unanimity on a topic where every person has one vote, uh, it's a disaster. There's no denying that it's an absolute disaster. If you require absolute unanimous decision, you're going to be there for a very long time, and it usually never works. That's not to say it's impossible, and there are other mechanisms that can be used to help this come along, but governance as far as I mean, it's worked in the past we've had episodes on it but yeah i get what you're saying right i get what you're saying today it wouldn't you know yeah no we did it right we did it in our class in one of our classes we ran an experiment where the students got to vote um on the assignments that they did in the semester and they literally could not come to a decision in what how long was that class an hour and 45 minutes or something I think that might have been the full block, man. Oh, it was a summer, I, so yeah, yeah. I think it might have been a two, two and a half yeah, hour class. They couldn't do it. It was impossible. Um, um, but but like, I think it, that's a lot of like, we aren't wired to so do things So that's the point like I that. was making is that like, because of some of the things that that baggage that's attached to us, the individualism and the me first attitude and the, the Protestant work ethic and all the other junk we talk about on this channel all the time, ideologically speaking, Nick's right. We have been socialized not to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. perhaps, and this is, I guess, where I'm going with this. If this thing took off, it wouldn't be instant, but across generations, there could be a new rewiring Mm -hmm. to where that might be possible because human beings have proven without beyond a shadow of a doubt historically that it is possible in groups uh, to come up with unanimous decisions if you have a different type of socialization, a different type of values, a different type of worldview. So it's possible. So governance here in the like blockchain world, um, I mean, it actually happens. It's already, the technology already exists basically is 
decentralized autonomous organizations issue governance tokens. So like one example is, let's say, uh, MakerDAO is a decentralized finance organization, and they have the Maker token. And if you own the token, and you can buy it on like Coinbase, any popular exchange, Uniswap, so forth. If you own that token, you can participate in the governance of this organization. Now, it's all about decentralized finance. So it's doing things like setting interest rates, let's say, in simplistic terms and so forth. So someone will make a proposal and say, I propose that we, uh, let's talk about collateral. They accept all kinds of collateral for loans. So they say, I propose that we begin to accept this token as collateral. And then the other owners of maker tokens can use their tokens to vote, right? And so you would say, I have 10 tokens, here are my uh, 10 votes and so forth. And mechanisms exist where like, if you don't wanna vote and you don't wanna participate daily, you can delegate your tokens to someone else and they can vote for you. So you don't have to participate, but you trust this other person and so they can use your tokens to vote. Now, it's not the same as one person, one vote, because it still basically might make right. The wealthy people that own the majority of the tokens can uh, have more of a weight of voting than uh, others, but it could be. Um, but at the very least, it is participatory and it is decentralized. So it's very interesting. You could govern an organization using blockchain technology. And the thing that it does is make it incredibly transparent because every single vote can be tracked to a specific account and so forth. So there's basically no room for like, you know, ballot stuffing and so forth. And like, you don't need a recount and like all these things. It all takes place on the blockchain. It's all completely transparent. And so the governance is really interesting that can exist using blockchain technology. Then he talks about logging in, like just logging into a website or something. The thing that I liked about this that was interesting is like, it's not like you can't log into other websites. Clearly you can, but if there are resources that the, let's just use the network union has that it offers to its members, he talks about like time locks and things like that, which is a technical mechanism where let's say you have to own one of these tokens in order to prove your membership in this union. Anyone could just buy one of those tokens, log into the union, and then use all these resources, maybe deplete them or whatever, depending on the circumstance. But what a time lock does is you can prove that I have held this token for X number of days or whatever the, the quantity would be. And so it kind of proves your membership that you're not just going to get in and get out and take advantage, right? So you could set a requirement that you must own these tokens for 30 days before you're considered a full-fledged member of this organization and you get access to all the resources um, just as an example. So it kind of prevents sort of hacking that would be, I can buy these tokens and just take advantage of the union. It's not possible using blockchain technology if they wanted to, which is interesting. Then he talks about quantifiable social capital. And I'm gonna be a negative Nancy for a second and say that I think this is where the article goes off the rails. Um, because, and I think it's only because he makes use of terminology that basically no one knows what it is anymore. And it doesn't really apply even to what he's talking about. So I'm going to ask Jared, what is a backlink? I have no idea. You are asking the wrong person. And that's exactly you're, why you're, you're I, the tech expert, I knew 100% that you were not going to know yeah. what a backlink was because only people that are in the tech world and that really have probably been in the tech world, even if you just joined the tech world, you might not even know what a backlink was. It was first made popular in the era of search engines. So like when Alta Vista and Ask Jeeves and Yahoo and Google was first getting started. I totally forgot Ask Jeeves even existed. <laughs> backlink was a really popular term. So this is what a backlink is for our uninitiated listeners. Our channel has a website. It's revolutionandideology.com, right? It's simple. If someone on their website links to our website, that is a backlink. 
So that would be one backlink for revolutionandideology.com. So they could say, maybe they're reading this article and they say, I want to comment on this article and they write an article on their own website, like Nick and Jared are idiots with a link to our website. <laughs> that would be one backlink for our website. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah. I, mean, I guess I should have predicted that. So in the theory of like search engines, sites that have greater backlinks rank higher in the search engine because in theory like people are interacting with them more right okay. so that's how in theory like sites like wikipedia etc rank higher in the search engines in theory those websites are more valuable because more people are linking to those i mean that's a good example like you research anything at this point and like i mean i'm a historian you're a sociologist and sometimes we need just like a quick date name whatever for our research mm -hmm. and yes literally if we just google it wikipedia will be number one yeah. every time so the backlink it, it has a good backlink game. No, 100%. <laughs> Although I must say like the algorithm that Google or any search engine uses now isn't solely based on backlinks. Mm -hmm. It much was much more backlink heavy back in the day. Now it's like Wikipedia, regardless of how many backlinks it has, is has that authority right in the search engine. Right. Like Google has made the, the decision to promote that above others, but that's fine. I mean, at least it's a pseudo-democratic platform, exactly. which is good. Right? Which is exactly yeah. what Apology gets into. However... If you didn't know what a backlink was, then the rest of this, the majority of this article makes zero sense to you. So he says, backlinks allow us to quantify a leader's support base. Now, I haven't taken this out of context. This is essentially how the article flows. Uh, he doesn't explain first off what a backlink is. He just says that one of the benefits of using a blockchain in this context, a network union, is that we could quantify social support. And then he goes into backlinks allow us to quantify a leader's support base. In my opinion, there is so much explanation that is missed in like that. That's a big jump that we haven't got the information to really make sense of in this article because my question is how? And I think as a result, the metaphor of the backlink really loses all meaning because it doesn't really apply because we have no idea how a backlink would work in this context. Yes, I know if someone links to my website, that's a backlink. Yes, I know a search engine will rate my website higher if uh, I have more backlinks. But making the jump of this will allow us to quantify a leader's support base is a big jump. And without some explanation in that gap, it, it really doesn't make sense. To me, it sounds almost like too arbitrary a way to judge like like social support in this case. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't know. I well, guess. and the problem is he's not using it in the search engine case, right? And like the website case, he, he, he's well, saying... He used the word leader. That's the first word no, that yeah. turns me so, off, right? But um, In our network union, right. we could somehow measure connections between people. He's calling those backlinks. That's where I think he's gone wrong because it doesn't really make sense. <clears throat> However, to his credit, he kind of seems to admit this in a footnote on the article, I think it's the first footnote, maybe I don't remember. He says that this is what a backlink means, basically it's kind of this esoteric term in search engine like theory. It's not really perfect, but he says, quote, still the term backlink is evocative, which is why we use it. And so I read that sentence and was like, so you're admitting this makes no sense, but it's evocative and that's why we use it. And then it immediately reminded me of Will Ferrell in Blades of Glory <laughs> when he's like, no one knows what it means, but it's provocative. Like no one knows what backlink means anymore. No one knows what that means unless you're really initiated into the tech world, but we're just going to use it because it sounds evocative. I mean, I'm and curious I'm like, about the social capital part of this. Okay, so I have more on that. So okay, put a pin okay, in that okay. for a second. All right. I want to come back to that. Yes, we're not done. me off right now. Okay. Yeah, I know. I knew that it would. So we have more. <laughs> I'm too predictable, man. So basically he's saying like, Backlinks, sorry, blockchain technology could be used to quantify someone's social capital. 
if he had just said that, I'm totally on board. I don't need more convincing. Like, yes, you could use blockchain, techno blockchain technology to quantify people's social capital in a social network. That's 100% possible. Taking the digression, I think, to use the back, try to apply this backlink metaphor in a way that's like really sloppy, he loses me there and it doesn't make a lot of sense. So yes, blockchains can be used to quantify social capital. On board with that, got it. The backlink thing, I just like, apology if you're somehow listening to this, I don't know how because you're wasting your time, but if someone this somehow, somehow gets to you, please abandon the backlink terminology in your book because unless you're really, really into the tech world, you're not even gonna know what that means. And if you are into the tech world, like I know what a backlink is, it does not make sense in the context that you're trying to use it. So that's one of my critiques and it's a minor one, but it just doesn't. So now let's get into his, his point really is that how we would do this. And he talks about social graphs and social trees. So first off, what is a social graph? And this is just straight from Wikipedia, quote, the social graph is a graph that represents social relations between entities. In short, it is a model uh, or representation of a social network. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you're seeing a picture of a social graph right now. And if you're not, um, I don't know why you're not, you should be, just kidding. We love our podcast listeners. But if you wanna see a picture of this, you can go to the website and uh, I've posted a picture of a social graph. Um, and it's basically just, uh, in this case, people are represented kind of by dots. They can be whatever, diamonds or whatever. And then the lines between them represent connections. And the people are called nodes, the dots, and the lines are called edges. So it really is a way to visualize how many people are connected to other people. You've seen a social graph before, you just probably never heard it called that. Um, so that's social graph. And it's not hierarchical is important. It's really just like a mashup of dots and lines, right? visualizing the connections between people. So you could create a social graph for like your friends on Facebook, maybe just a picture of a bunch of dots and lines, right? And so you could see how many people are connected to you and how many people are you connected to and so forth. It does quantify social connections. <sighs> then he talks about a social tree, which as far as I can tell, he invented, but I'm not sure. I searched social tree extensively to try to find some version of this and I could not, but that doesn't mean that I like really scraped the bottom of the internet. But uh, he says, what if we developed a new kind of social network organized not as a social graph, but a social tree? Organized like a company hierarchy, but at the scale of a city or state. So like I said, as far as I can tell, he invented this term, uh, which is fine. Um, basically, a social tree is a social graph, but represented in a hierarchical fashion to discuss who has the most social capital. And in this case, in this context, what he's writing about who should be the leader of the network union. So I again have a picture. Um, I've taken the same social graph from my first, uh, what we were just talking about and represented it in a hierarchical function. So the person with the most connections is at the top. Okay, fine. Now we're ready for Jared's critique that I know he is ready to give us. The anarcho-primitivist in me is so triggered right now. <laughs> um, I, I'm not really one, as you can see, I have a, a laptop and whatnot. Um, not necessarily wearing like a loincloth, but, but, uh, okay, so right off the bat, first and foremost, like leadership of any kind, any sort of hierarchy, again, but that, here's the thing. He's not lying. He's not being deceptive. He does see like, and we talked about this at the beginning of this episode, like he does see like kind of a national state-based structure. So he's actually not like deceiving anybody by, by 
discussing any sort of hierarchy and positions mm-hmm. of leadership. But for me personally, the minute like you go there, we're done. We're done having this conversation. So you can't, it's one of those ideals where you're seeking to create something a little bit more horizontal in terms of maybe whatever it is in the case of the blockchain. Again, we talked about it, it could be currency, it could be social capital. You're trying to create something a little bit more horizontal, but then immediately undermining it by still looking to hierarchy for guidance, right? Like mm-hmm. this basic super cliche pyramid model that has been around for again at this point thousands of years you're not really doing anything you're basically taking the problems of the material and moving them to the virtual in my opinion Love that's it. the first mm-hmm. that's the first problem the second problem social capital i can't even critique it as good as black mirror already has the show black mirror in the episode specifically called nosedive um, it's reminiscent of the horrors of the sesame credit that I see going on in China. Google the sesame, whoops, excuse me, sesame credit or, mm-hmm. or YouTube a video of it. I don't even know what word to say or word to describe this. Unethical, hollow, surrogacy. I, there's so many that just come to mind. I just... I don't know. I, I, I'm so, I guess, triggered by that idea of using like... <laughs> the virtual whether it is blockchain or whether it's going to be ai which would be the other debate that's not for this episode per se this has nothing to do with ai but whatever it is whatever algorithms are being used to generate social capital is it's it's i don't know i guess i'm a i'm a humanist so it would be anti-humanist turning individuals into social security numbers is embarrassing enough turning individuals to dots on a graph or a tree even worse well, Even forget about the like visualization that I created for it, right? So let's give him, like, your critique is valid, and that's exactly what I thought when I first read it also, but let's try to give him the benefit of the doubt because I know he's not trying to recreate, like, authoritarianism, right? Like, that's not his goal at all. I think what he's getting at here, in fact, I know what he's getting at here, is that because he has a long section in here about inheriting or earning your social capital, right? And he really does denigrate people that like inherit institutions and stuff. Like he's all about that, right? That's not an efficient way to select a leader. It right. never goes well, right? That's terrible. Right. And he even is critiquing like the, he specifically mentioned Zuckerberg by name, that he created this company. And as a result of being the CEO of Facebook, he has incredible social capital, right? But there's these weird things where like he can tell all of the 50,000 employees or whatever of Facebook what to do, but he can't tell the millions of users of Uh, Facebook what to do, right? So all that to say, I think what he's getting at is that it would be a more just selection of the leaders than either inheriting or just because you started a company or because you were elected in like a, you know, fake election, etc. That in theory, this could be a more just and fair way of a leader because and what I'll say to challenge your and my critiques is, isn't this really kind of using technology to indicate voluntary association here, right? Like we talk about all the time in our episodes on anarchist theory, the anarchists aren't about all hierarchy. They support in certain situations, voluntary hierarchy, right? And we use the Spanish Civil War all the time as our example, is that it's not as if they were all just out willy-nilly fighting and shooting in the fields, right? That they realized in the moment that in a military circumstance, they needed someone to be a leader and to give orders, right? Just logistically, it was possible. We, yeah, I just did the episode and on Nestor yeah, Machno, and that's exactly. fine. But I guess what I'm not seeing but is... But let me finish. So they, <laughs> in the moment, volunteer to give leadership to a right. person. So what he's saying is... 
that's fine, but it's really sloppy if we're going to have a million people and like go around somehow with ballots of like, who do you volunteer to be the leader? Like, oh, well, I volunteer to follow this person in this case for this specific goal. He's just saying we could use blockchain technology to make that instantaneous and transparent. I won't disagree with the point you're making that, that yes, and even if we want to go back further than, than, than the anarchists and discuss like that primitivist comment I just made, yes, like indigenous peoples or hunter-gatherer societies would not always be horizontal. They would oscillate between horizontal and hierarchy depending on the specific material conditions at a time. Like on a hunt, yes, you're going to follow the guy that's the best hunter for that specific mm -hmm. hunt. I guess what I'm seeing here as problematic is I don't vision, and maybe it's just because I'm not tech enough, a scenario in the virtual world that will ever require that, that is ever as dire as a battle situation, for example. Okay, so let's give the example um, that he's given, which I have later on, and I don't think he did this in the article, but I think I've just listened to a bunch of interviews with him and stuff, and he says, like, if we got a thousand people together that all had a salary of $100,000 a year, keep in mind he lives in the tech space, right, so that's not that much for a software developer, if we got a thousand people together that all made a hundred thousand dollars a year and they agreed that they were going to essentially negotiate together, what is that? A hundred million dollars of purchasing power that they would all have that they could go to cities as an example and say, Hey, Austin, Texas, we are all going to move there. If you do X, Y, and Z for us, right? If you provide us with these benefits, if not, we're going to go to another city. And so you get these cities competing for the residency of these people, just like huge corporations do. We know when Amazon says they're going to build a new factory and they put out a proposal to cities, they like bend over backwards to bring an Amazon factory to their cities. We live in Colorado Springs and it's a perfect example. We just got a new uh, Amazon factory because they bent over backwards to bring Amazon here. He's saying that doesn't just have to happen with corporations. If we just get enough people together that are like-minded, that have the same end goal, that they can negotiate the same way and bring the benefits to themselves as individuals. Now, to bring it back to your point, he's saying that might be some situation where we would need to determine which of those thousand members, let's mm -hmm. say, we are all willing to follow and he can be the one that's negotiating with the city or whatever, right? But like to expect us all to be able to do that in a way that's completely decentral, maybe that's not possible. I mean, that's fair. I don't know that I fully agree with the utilitarian argument there, but now I'm back to what we talked about in the last episode where I was teaching us about Nestor Machno and mm -hmm. the Black Army and the brief um, tirade I went on regarding like the difference between like anarchism and socialism, at least ideologically speaking. One, there's a, a handful of differences, but one of the most paramount is a revolutionary vanguard um, or, or intelligentsia. And I don't know that that type of prefiguration, even in the virtual, is going to end up ever like withering back away again. And maybe that's just my pessimism as a historian that has seen all of these wonderful, new, innovative ideas, whether they're in forms of government, whether they're in forms of transportation, whether they're in forms of energy usage, like they're all going to quote unquote change the world, but they never do. They, I mean, again, like the tools are different now. We've advanced obviously in terms of technology, this hasn't advanced. So yes, every new advent, whether that advent is a government system or a tool like this computer in front of me, is still being used for the exact same thing it would have been used for thousands of years ago. Control, power, exploitation, etc. Again, the tools are different. In fact, they're more efficient at this than they used to be, right? Like a gun is more efficient than a spear. Okay, so I'll challenge you and say, forget so everything about the long-term goal of the network state. 
Right. right. And this is one of my main critiques of this article is not the article itself, it's the order that the articles came out in. Because had he started with the network union, which I, if you're listening, please put that chapter first in the book, right? And said, this is how this can happen at a micro level. We can get a thousand people together sure. to negotiate collectively. Got it. That makes total sense. Then X is how we take all of those groups and we form this network state that has a different mission and exists, right? Blah, blah, blah. If you go in that order, it's much easier to digest. And maybe, and then he can explain away in theory, right? Some of those critiques that you just had. Because, like, well, I'm also going to reverse critique it now. Let's say I am a proponent of vanguardism. Let's, I'll switch from anarchism to socialism. If mm -hmm. I am a proponent of vanguardism, we are now going to allow the quote unquote unwashed masses to use social capital to decide who's going to be making choices for the rest of us. So based on the current conditions of society, and maybe I'm being just, I'm being way too simplistic and maybe uh, derogating here, but let's pretend in a perfect world that ninja the streamer and the Kardashians and Mark Zuckerberg are now making choices on my behalf because the unwashed masses like watching them on Twitch or for Zuckerberg, whatever you watch him on or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like you get what I'm saying. Probably like, Facebook or CNN. I whatever. Guess. Like, yeah. yes. And now I'm scared to death. So like I'm trying to just look at it from both angles. From my, again, since this is a channel called Revolution and Ideology, from an ideological perspective, it is that that part, it, the one part is un-anarchist. From the other part, from the socialist perspective, this is scary as hell. Giving that much social capital to individuals, to p potentially giving it to individuals um, that will be making choices on my behalf. Mm -hmm. Now, is that much more scary than giving um, <laughs> decision-making power to Senator X, Y, or Z right now? That's the debate. I exactly. don't know. So that's what and I have that, here, right? If, if that's the case, then actually maybe I do trust the streaming gamer ninja to make better choices than, uh, I, I don't know, I can't even think of a senator right now, Mitch McConnell, yeah. right? Like, I, I, I might make that That's decision. funny because I was like, I can see that guy's face. What's his fucking name? And it's Mitch McConnell. Yeah, yeah like... So, yes, and I have that here, right? He's basically saying that blockchain technology could enable us to quantify social capital in a way that represents a tree instead of a social graph, which would, in theory, be more fair than people just occupying leadership positions because they started the company or inherited an institution. That I agree with. However, my critique is exactly yours. Let's say I make a social tree out of my Facebook followers. I don't know who has the most social capital in all of my friends, but I guarantee you they probably have no business leading anything that I want to be involved in, right? So there's a lot of work to be done here to establish the difference between a leader and an influencer, because those are two very different things. Like you said, I don't know if I want Ninja leading my network union. Maybe I do, depending on what the goal of that union is. But if it's right. to, you know, collectively negotiate our well-being. I don't know why I picked him out of a hat. I was just trying to think of like fine, a prominent... right? Or PewDiePie or like whoever, right? Yeah. right? Pick yeah. someone, right? We have to definitely, definitely differentiate between who's a leader and who is an influencer. Otherwise, we end up in the scenarios where people with the most charisma occupy the leadership positions which is no different than politics now and that's exactly the problem. what i have so, written so, so, yes and, and then i'm thinking like it's even worse like those streamers whatever I, I i can't even say i've ever watched a pewdiepie or ninja stream or video or whatever but i assume they're popular and whatever decent mm -hmm. human beings and whatever but i've seen other critiques of some of these other influencers um who is it the alpha males like are, oh, like God. yeah mm -hmm. are you but they're popular they're popular mm -hmm. on tiktok Right, they're popular on YouTube. Yep. What What are we gonna do with that? Right. right, like those alphas and the. This is how you. What do they What do they teach people? How to be alpha? How to get women? Mm -hmm. How to like? The, 
do you really want that kind of toxicity, right? Like in exactly. in your new union? Mm-hmm. And that's just one example off the top of my head that are like some of the most appalling. I'm sure there's worse, but yeah. Yeah. So I say like one of my critiques of this article, which is like not a real critique because it's like this short little article, relatively short, right? He doesn't at all say how this would work. He just says that this could work. So I have no, no disagreement really that this could work. It, it could work. But we have all of these like fears, right? It's horrifying if it's not done correctly. So there's a lot to be flushed out here of how it could work. But I do agree with the basic premise that it could essentially, in theory, it could be more fair than someone just starting a company and then having thousands of uh, workers or someone inheriting some institution and that like, uh, right, someone dies and overnight they're in charge of the lives of thousands and thousands of people. Like those, that's, that is unfair and we all agree on that, I think. I mean, I have way too much historical baggage to, to have that kind of optimism at this point. Yeah, in theory, uh, whatever, like, yeah, the Bolsheviks were supposed to make things more fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, in theory, right, like the, uh, <laughs> the Federalists in, in the United States were supposed to but, make things more but fair, but they, they did not deny that it was more fair than the czar. It was better than the czar, let's say. It was more technologically advanced and progressive in terms of like social capital and things. No, we, we I don't absolutely know. will not we let you know. sit here and look we me in the know. face and say that life was not better. Neither of us are Russian historians. No, absolutely not. Neither you of cannot, us are Russian no. historians. We don't know. You cannot tell me that life was okay, better well, under the Tsar. Let's go into more There's of our no. wheelhouse. Was, do you think the post-war for independence in terms of the, the general yeoman farmer in the middle of the sticks in Georgia just trying to get by was more fair before the war for independence or more for after? the war well you know the answer to that because neither of us believe that the war for independence was a liberatory movement but that's my point like because if, they, if you look at what those individuals no, but there said, was no social capital it was a war but if you look at what those individuals said and proposed for some sort of new form of governments which really wasn't new as okay they copied well, their we're ideas. way way in the but, weeds here let's just say that because we agree we both are more lean towards the anarchists right and we would right. both agree according to that philosophy that it's okay to have voluntary leadership. They have to be accountable, instantly recallable, like all of these things, right? Let's just say that his hypothetical so network union in. has it. So if you put Let's the assume, in. right? Fine. Okay. Then we don't have to go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> one more critique I do have. Actually, this isn't the last one. But one critique. This is small. Just like this is really like semantic. But he says, quote, all of the people under Jeff Bezos, who is Amazon's current CEO, if you don't know, uh, though not for very long are organized in a functional hierarchy under a single CEO, and all of them have explicitly opted into being there. My critique is I think we need to take a lot of care in using the term opted in when they're being paid to be there. As long as wages exist, I don't think we can qualify that as opting in, right? Now, of course, the conservative rhetoric is like, well, they could go work anywhere else if they don't like it, right? That's not what Srinivasan is saying by any means. But the problem I have is, as long as they are being paid, we can't say that they have opted in to follow Jeff Bezos because we have all worked jobs where we hate the manager, but have no choice but to be there because the paycheck is a paycheck, right? So the free market is not free in terms of labor and it never has no, been. No, 100%. stop perpetuating that lie. Right. I'm not saying he's saying that because he's not using it no, in that context, no, 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 but no, 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 no. so many people do yeah. that there's a problem. But I do critique Srinivasan as just saying that they've opted into being there because we can't at this point construe being an employee of some organization as support for its CEO. Like we're way removed from living in a society where we can uh, make that jump. Like that's just not a thing, which we just have to be careful on that. Uh, it's not a big point in his article, so it's not really consequential, but I just wanted to throw that out there that I had a problem with um, that. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, 
like I said earlier, my real, real critique is this coming before the network state article, because I think if he really, really solidified and tightened up what a network union was, it would do, it would lend itself to explaining how the network state could function. So these being out of order, order is like, we're digesting these as they come out on the blog, right? So it, it, it would have been much, he would have been much better served to do the network union one first instead of the network state one. And basically in general, he says that we could take the traditional union model. He doesn't say this, this is what I'm saying because it makes it more easier to understand. We could take the traditional union model, which I think he probably steers clear of mentioning because he doesn't want it to be politically left or right. He wants to say neutral, but I'll say it. We could take the union model and we could empower that. Actually, you know, that's a, that's a good way of framing it. He says we could take the social network and empower it with technology to make it function like an efficient union. I will say we can take the traditional union and empower it with certain technologies and bolster it with the operation of a social network to make it much more powerful than either of those two things would be individually. That is possible. How we avoid the landmines that are going to present themselves, we have to really flush out those details, but at least at a high abstraction theoretical level like that is in theory possible. It's definitely technologically easy um, using the blockchain and other technologies, we can make that happen ideologically uh, we are going to have some obstacles. We're going to have to get people to wrap their brains around functioning like this virtually. Um, that, that is a huge obstacle. We'll have to work out how that can be done. But none of this is impossible. Um, though, like Jared has said, and I've said, there are landmarks that we have to really avoid. The real question I have, and I want to give Jer Jared credit here for framing it this way. When we were talking about the network state, after we turned off the cameras, we were still discussing. And he said, you know, the real question is, how do we differentiate between a user and a citizen, right? You are a user of Facebook, but you're a citizen of the United States or China or wherever you live, right? China's probably not a good example, I guess, but you get the idea. How do we turn someone from a user in a regular social network to viewing themselves as a citizen of the network state? That's the way Jared phrased it, which I really like. How this is applicable to what we're talking about right now, this network union is, how do you get someone to, instead of identifying as a user, define themselves as a member of this union? And I think there's a lot of really like intricacies in there. For example, you use Reddit, but you're a member of a subreddit. You use Facebook, you're a Facebook user, but you're a member of a Facebook group. It's very, very nuanced, but that very, very minute thing becomes incredibly consequential and its importance is magnified if we're talking about using these virtual communities to actually achieve real world things and have people identify their membership in those virtual communities as something really, really crucial to the way that they constitute themselves and their own self-identity. All of those details need to be flushed out. So Cerner Austin's really operating at a really, really high level in these blog posts he's sending out. There's so many things between the lines that are massive works just on their own that are gonna have to be flushed out before this has any kind of real world application. Any thoughts on any of that? We didn't even tickle the environmental concerns. No, we're still leaving that. We're putting a pin in that still. Like clearly um, if our whole world is going to operate on a blockchain, that's like disastrous for the environment, but we'll come back and, to and, that. And does that offset by like, right. by changing our different other habits to be more online and less like in our vehicles or on our trains or in our airplanes or buying industrial goods or whatever and all the other stuff, does that offset the 
um, nightmare that is like flow chain mining or what is that even the word? What am I saying? No, that was a terrible example because what, flow is on proof of stake. Not but flow, but whatever. Bitcoin, like the yeah. yeah, mining and all those other things that would have been <laughs> flow chain mining. Sorry, yeah. tech heads that might have been drawn. But to our so you do bring up a point that like like yeah, there are different levels, right? So Bitcoin mining is disastrous for the environment. Um, regardless of people are like, it's 75% renewable and like fiat currency is so much worse. Like we cannot ignore that Bitcoin mining is disastrous for the environment. Ethereum is currently disastrous for the environment. Bitcoin doesn't really play in here except for the currency aspect because any blockchain, Bitcoin doesn't have the capability for smart contracts. That was the real revolution that Ethereum brought into being. Ethereum is still proof of work, so it's still mining based. But they realize that Ethereum is disastrous right now because of that. So they are going to go to ETH2, which will be proof of stake, which is less energy consumptive. Or like Cardano is, they already are. And these are, are just like, these are just the cryptocurrencies. Yeah. What would it take to run uh, chains for these other things that we mm-hmm. would need to run a virtual stake? No, so that's not true. Like, if so you Ethereum, tell me, that's what I'm asking mm-hmm. you the question. Not, I'm not being Ethereum a, isn't just a cryptocurrency. In fact, it's smart contract first. That was okay. the real iteration that they came but up with. But back to the question, what would it take to run all of these things? Because mm-hmm. that's really what the environment, that's the environmental concern, right? Is yeah. the mining and the machinery needed and the energy and the resources needed is what's just destroying the environment. Mm-hmm. Would it need, and I'm asking out of now ignorance. Yeah, well, that's kind how. of where I'm heading, right? So Bitcoin okay. and Ethereum right now, are based on what's called proof of work. In really simple terms, a computer has to do a bunch of work to prove that it has solved an algorithm, let's just say. Right. In really simple terms, a mathematical problem. Ethereum is that now, blockchain or Bitcoin is that now. Ethereum is moving to ETH2, which is called proof of stake, and it really is more hard drive intensive than it is like GPU and CPU intensive, right. which is a fraction of the energy cost. Right. Flow chain, like you mentioned flow, that was really their first iteration, and they came out relatively quickly. They're on proof of stake. Cardano was invented by Chris Hoskinson, something like that. I can't remember his last name right now. Mathematician that was one of the original founders right. of Ethereum and said, hey, we can do this differently. And so he created Card- Cardano, which has smart contract capability and from the get-go has been proof of stake. So like ETH2, Cardano, Flow, and there are so many others are already on proof of stake. Mm-hmm which is a fraction of the environmental impact of a Bitcoin. Because you're not using the GPUs and CPUs. However, it doesn't get to the third iteration that you want, which is like we're not using computers at all, right? Like we're really far from that being a reality. And this clearly is not going to do that. So, okay. Well, I mean, yes, we didn't get to the the, the environmental concern, but that was pretty good. Um, In terms of like other critique, like, I mean, here's the other thing. Like, I guess... It depends on what lens I use. As somebody that's just looking, if I'm if I if I, if I'm more of a reformer and I'm just looking for minute changes that are more progressive and might make the world a little, there's potential for something better. Then 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 I don't hate everything that we just got done talking mm-hmm. about. But like we talk about in class, when we ask students to either create their own ideology or to create their own stateless society or to create their next social movement, those are like the three like main projects we ask of them in different courses, and we always end up at the end of the semester. For frustrated that they can't think of an actual real paradigm shift because their socialization is so heavy that they cannot imagine a new completely new world and and we're probably guilty of this too at our age at this point like we're kind of I stuck. mean, I, many people say it's impossible right you can't go from a to z without doing bcd right like that's impossible but but it that, has to be iterative. But the radical M is is like that. Like mm-hmm. at some point, somebody is going to have to break because this is to me. It's still we're still on the same linear trajectory. 
This is just an iteration. This of is the, just yeah. a an iteration. That's why my main overall critique so far is the same thing, right? Right. This is just using technology to create a different form of state, but it's still a state, and in theory, it's still it's still going exploitative. To be, yeah. It's still resource uh, intensive. Like like yes. But I'm trying to reserve that judgment for when his whole book comes out, and then right. we actually have the big picture of what he's trying to achieve, what he really thinks is possible, and then we can go there, right? Right. I'm trying to hold on to that because I don't really know what the big picture is yet. Um, but yeah, we'll get there. So then I also kind of feel like a little bit of like of a hypocrite that people can't imagine what's next. Is another world possible? And then I also might struggle with that myself. Mm-hmm. Like what does a complete paradigm shift look like that, again, more or less like collapses everything we're about now, but creates something new? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we started the conversation on nihilism and revolutionary nihilism. Right. It's like maybe the answer literally is just to destroy everything. Maybe that's just it. That that. That is what has to happen before people can will be motivated to think outside, forced to think outside the box and build from the ground up. That's never happened in the history of the world, but we've never been at this point in the history of the world. Like, who knows? I'm not saying that's what we need to do. I'm just saying that's why we started that conversation. Well, it's like, happened a lot in the history of the world, maybe not of humanity. But that's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, Shiva would agree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Hindus believe it. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, find us online, revolutionideology.com. Um, if you're interested, check out the episode we did before this on the network state, though it really should have been after this, would have been better, but uh, we didn't have a choice there. Um, if you uh, like what we do, you can support us on your podcast app. Leave us a rating and a comment and share us with your friends. If you're seeing this on YouTube, uh, like and subscribe. Can't believe I just said that. Um, if you really, really want to support us, Do you a can, little click thing. You can, yeah, I'll put it there, yeah. You can uh, support us on, on Patreon. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, You make it possible for us to spend more time uh, focusing on doing this kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, we're at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I'm Nick. I'm sellout. I'm Jared. (laughs) Later.